0: Hey, everyone. It's me, Ben, and I just need to give a brief introduction to thank you so much for all of the support you guys have given to the Thrilling Adventure Hour Kickstarter campaign. For those who don't know, the Thrilling Adventure Hour is a stage show in the style of old-time radio that my writing partner and I write and produce every month uh, at Largo at the Cornette here in Los Angeles. It's also a podcast on the Nerdist Network it stars people you love from television like Paget Brewster, Paul F. Tompkins, Busy Phillips, James Urbaniak from the Venture Brothers, all kinds of great people. John DiMaggio from Futurama and every cartoon ever, uh, plus a whole bunch of people who you will be getting to know as soon as you listen to this and uh, start watching some TV. Uh, So we're running this Kickstarter campaign, and the fans of both Thrilling Adventure Hour and the Nerdist Writers panel have been unbelievable in their support. We are able to fund a graphic novel based on the worlds of the show. Um, We are able to do a backstage web series. We just reached that goal, so thank you so much for that. And now the big one. Uh, We've shuffled things around because we kept hearing about what everybody wants, which is a concert film. That way, people around the world can see this show and experience it, uh, what the experience, with the live show is like. And it really is something fun. Uh, it's, a, it's a special experience and it's a big show, so it's not something we really get to travel with. Um, so, so, we are trying to make it to $165,000 and we have 13 days to do it. And I know that we can with your support. Uh, we work hard to bring you this free entertainment every week, both Thrilling Adventure Hour and the Nerdist Writers Panel. Uh, and so, if you would like to thank us, this is a great way to do it. You know, we're not going to be doing something like this very often. We don't do pledge drives and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, so, we really appreciate all of your support. There's some really cool rewards on the Kickstarter page. Everything from signed scripts uh, to the opportunity to sit on sit in on a table read or a rehearsal to some backstage access both during the concert film shooting or during a regular show. Uh, You can get a Skype call with someone like James Urbaniak or uh, Jeff Greenstein who ran Will and Grace for years. I mean, there's stuff on here where if I were a, you know, 22 year old writer, not living in Los Angeles, just getting started and wanted to gain insight into the industry, uh, I would be so excited to take advantage of these Skype calls. There's a drinks with Jane Espenson, Uh, There's some really cool stuff on there, so please come and check it out. The best way to do that is to visit our website, thrillingadventurehour.com, or follow us on Twitter, at ThrillingADV, or like us on Facebook. Um, Thanks again for all the support you guys have already given. It really means a lot to us. Uh, It's nice to know that the fans uh, appreciate this thing that we work so hard on. So once again, it's thrillingadventurehour.com, Twitter, ThrillingADV, Or like us on Facebook to give to the Kickstarter campaign. It runs until November 7th, and then that's it. We really want to make this concert film, so help us make it happen. Uh, And now enjoy this really fun panel with uh, some really cool people. Thanks.
1: Now entering Nerdist.com It's the
0: Nerdist Writers
2: Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking, writing with writers. Writers talking writing can get pretty exciting. The talk can be lightning. It's very, very frightening. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Yeah.
0: Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel series, an informal chat about writing and the business and process of writing. Each and every panel benefits 826 la the national nonprofit tutoring program. For more information on a la 826LA, visit 826 laorg I'm your moderator, Ben Blacker. Follow me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker. I'm the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on iTunes and via Nerdist.com. I've written for the series Super Ninjas and Supernatural. Working her way up from a researcher and assistant on the West Wing to writing for the show for several years, our first panelist also has credits on Justice Drive, Private Practice, and Parenthood. She currently is on the staff of the mid-season series, Do No Harm. Please welcome Lauren Hissrich. <laughs> Our next panelist did a whole bunch of things which he will tell us about uh, before creating NBC's Hawaii and then made a, the wildly successful leap to cable with USA's White Collar. His new show, Graceland, is due next year. Please welcome Jeff Easton.
3: Hi, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. Good. All right. Hey, guys.
0: Our final panelist's credits include... Alf Evening Shade Dinosaurs, Mad About You, Almost Perfect, Fired Up My Name Is Earl, Go On, and many more He is the creator of the standout series The Trouble with Normal Andy Richter Controls the Universe Which if you guys have not seen Please rent, it's so good Uh, And Better Off Ted Please welcome Victor Fresco Hi Victor Thank you for being here um, you guys, let's, let's jump right in uh, before we delve into the past I want to hear about how things are going right now This season was notoriously difficult for staffing, for selling, kind of for everything in the business um, But some of you have joined series, some of you have sold series, some of you are starting up on series uh, Lauren, starting with you, tell us where you were last year And how you wound up where you are and how things are going
2: Let's see if I can get this down. Can you help me? <laughs> I, I don't think
0: it goes any lower.
2: I need to be taller then.
0: You can move a little closer. Okay. Brilliant.
2: Yes, perfect. Brilliant.
0: This is Thank all you. staying in. Thank you. Yeah. This, this should It'd be that great for thrilling, the.
2: Thrilling, thrilling It's stuff going in the podcast. blooper reel. Um, let's see. A year ago, um, about a year and a half ago, I was having a baby, so um, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't working on. Congratulations. Then. Thank you. Expecting number two soon. Oh my gosh. Um, Yeah, I'm just breaking story, you guys. I'm just popping them out. <laughs> Um, so uh, in the meantime of having babies and making babies, uh, sorry, honey. Um, <laughs> uh, I wrote two different pilots for CBS, which was fun and a blast. Neither of them were made. Are, were, um, are you
0: uh, in a deal with CBS?
2: I was not. I okay. had two blind script deals. Oh, interesting. And both times they, uh, I pitched and they liked the ideas. So it was great because I basically had sort of two years off just to write from home um, can you talk
0: about what those ideas were?
2: Yes, they were both. Um, they were both medical shows. Which I'm—I am not a doctor. I've never—I um, should not be a doctor, um, but somehow I got—I uh, did private practice for two years. So somehow I got on the uh, the the doctor route. So uh, so I can write medical stories. Um, so yeah, one was just basically a uh, a show about a doctor who had fled the United States and was working in Africa and sort of got brought back to live back in, her, uh, back in her small town and sort of what that transition was like. And then last year's, uh, which I loved, was a very, uh, it's a hard pitch. It was about a reality show and a doctor and a rock star, you know? So, yeah. That one? Yeah. It was good. It was great. But you know, that it. trope. Exactly. Yeah, they'd heard it
3: too many
0: times. Exactly. Was they didn't want happened? to make that one.
2: Was so, um, that a
3: reality show or a drama about a reality show? It was show? a drama
2: about a reality show, oh, well. which I'm told is very difficult to do. So... See, um, but yeah, so uh, so I wrote those two, and uh, which allowed me to probably get my job this year, which is on Do No Harm for NBC, which will be on in February, which is a medical drama. So, hmm.
0: okay, so that makes sense. That, and uh, and just before we move on, uh, tell me about you. I assume had to go in, and you made the rounds of interviews. Before getting staffed on Do No Harm. Yes. Uh, And tell us a little bit about that experience. Was it the same as usual? Was it different?
2: No. um, And it's interesting to hear that it was more difficult for everyone, because I just assumed that it was difficult for me, because I had taken two years off of staffing. And so, um, you know, uh, one of a writer's biggest fears is obscurity, and stepping back, and you know, your agent's saying, like, people will forget you, so don't, you know... Um, so I was afraid I'd be forgotten. And uh, so I assumed it was just me being forgotten. No. <laughs> Glad to hear that it was hard for everyone. Um, uh, no, but it was, uh, it was very tough. There were a lot fewer meetings, a lot fewer offers. Um, I had, after the West Wing, um, I had such a great run on the West Wing. And after that, it was not difficult to get a job for mm-hmm. a while. And this was the first year that it really came down to... Um, a lot of late nights of me writing my agents and say, heard anything yet? Heard anything yet? Heard anything yet? And uh, oh, it was nerve-wracking. But uh, I Ask think I got who, who's your agent? Uh, Dave Park at UTA. Okay. And uh, they called me. I think it was about 10:30 p.m. on a weeknight, and uh, I answered the phone and. I, they were drunk at uh, at Upfronts, uh, but they said, you know, we we would not call to tell you bad news at 10:30 at night on a weeknight, drunk from uh, from Upfronts. So that's how I got my job, which was great. That's great. It was a, it was a happy end of that story. So. Well,
0: congratulations. Thank you. Uh, and it's a great room, from what I hear. Oh
2: my God, it's amazing. We're uh, we're basically a love fest. It's sort of disgusting. It's gross. Yeah, it's, it's totally really gross. gross. We all love each other, and we're like, no, we're all great. It's so
0: it's a blast. Well, good luck. Thank you, uh, Jeff. You were getting a new show off the ground yes. this year. Right. Uh, tell us about that process. When did you pitch it? When was the um, pilot shot? What, tell a, us all about sure. it. Sure.
3: If, if, you know, to, uh, to, to what you said earlier, jumping back a year. Last year, um, you know, I was working on White Collar. Uh, my USA show. Working on uh, Deep in season three about a year ago. Um, you know, because of the success of White Collar, Fox had made me an overall deal, um, by which I mean they attempted to kill me. <laughs> Attempting to kill me. Uh, and I'd had a you know script laying around for a while. I actually, it's called Graceland. I wrote it in I believe 2003 for NBC. This was, you know, I I'd, I'd, uh, NBC had hired me year one to write uh, write a project called SWAT. Same thing. They liked it, didn't go. Year two, I wrote Graceland for them, um, which again they were really considering it, and they decided to go with uh, Alicia Silverstone's Mitch, *Mismatch* instead. Um, Wise choice. Which, yeah, really, yeah, that worked well. Uh, so the script's kind of been, you know, been sitting around since 03, and uh, you know, um, Fox said, "Well, we need well, you've got to get this overall deal working for you." So they had talked to USA and said, "Hey, let's uh, let's." You know, dig Graceland out, and uh, let's let's revive it. So you know, we decided, okay, let's give it a shot. It's essentially it's a true story. Um, essentially, okay, if you're if you're DEA, if you're FBI, if you're Customs, it's very tough to get the good kids out of the academies to LA. If they want surf and fun, they go to Florida where things are a lot cheaper. So they were running into this problem back uh, back at the end of the, in the in the late 90s. And so what one guy got a bright idea. It's like so they took a Seized um, drug lord's mansion on the beach, <laughs> took it and they stuffed it full of all these uh, young undercover agents from DEA, FBI and Customs. That's the true part. So, um, you know, uh, seemed like a good idea for a TV show, and uh, that, that's essentially the idea. So we kind of updated it and stuff like that. So, um, you know, we did the pilot. When did we do the p- March? Yeah, so we did the pilot. Actually, uh, tested very well, and uh, you know, they gave us the green light for series. So as a matter of fact. Just before I got here, we were in the Graceland room with uh, with, with the writers um, breaking one of the stories for our third episode. Nice. So that's, that's right. what we're caught up and to. And so now. you're kind of running two shows. Yeah, I'm running right two now. shows. How's well, that treating you? I not well. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's very few people that I've that, that I've been able to talk to. The, the biggest problem I've got, honestly, is that n- people who haven't done it have a great idea of how I should do it. So I'm getting a lot of input from people telling me how it needs to be done, yet they have no idea <laughs> how to do it. So that's been one of the how, problems. How are you doing? Um, it's just, you know, the tough part was we, you know, the, the end of white collar overlapped with the beginning yeah. of Graceland, and that was very, very tough um, just in terms of no sleep and just trying to put your, put yourself in the, the correct headspace. Um, you know, I heard uh, there's, there's a rumor when Cameron, James Cameron, was... Uh, was hired to write he he was working on Terminator 1 and Aliens at the same time and supposedly he would set up uh, one computer on one side of his house to work on one and then a computer on the other side to work on the other just to be able to separate that and that uh, I found there's probably some some logic to that just trying to keep the stories the characters and everything else separated has, has been a real challenge Well, good luck. Thank you. Uh, I I only hear great things about it. Well,
0: not (laughs) (laughs) Uh, good.
1: When does it premiere,
3: do you know? Uh, Next summer.
0: We don't have
1: an air date yet. Great.
0: Uh, Victor, tell us about your past year. How have you been? Where have you been? And Um, where are you now? Yeah, I can go
1: back to June. I can go back further if you want. But I started a new deal at NBC Universal in June, -June. Mm -hmm. mid-June. And so as part of that, I'm consulting on a show called Go On, a Matt Perry show for NBC. So I'm there started off three days a week going down to two eventually maybe down to one and so consulting just means part-time and in my other duties over there for uh under my deal is i developed a couple of pilots that i took out uh actually i had three i did two on my own and one with a partner and uh two my two sold the other one didn't i'm not saying that now it sounds like i'm blaming my partner but it's not his happen. fault. <laughs> yeah, but it was. I found it a much harder year this year. Yeah. Selling was a yeah, why, ha- a much harder year. In what way were you um, feeling it was harder? I felt like they're chasing big titles that necessarily don't necessarily translate into good shows. But um, you know, and I won't. Uh, I don't want to trash anyone's show that's on this year. But if you look at like you can cut uh, out the title too, uh, you yeah, <laughs> know big ideas like shit my dad says yeah. or um, i hate my teenage daughter which are uh provocative ideas i guess um which i think is what they're kind of looking for but when i you know look at shows that i watch and i think or what they describe as what's the one sheet you know a big one sheet idea which may be applicable more in features or even in one hour it's not particularly in television, and you look at shows that have been successful in half hour, Modern Family, there's no big one sheet for Modern Family, as opposed to Neighbors has a great one sheet, but it doesn't mean it's going to you know, uh, be a successful show. But... They're chasing the one-sheet, and I think it's because as their numbers dwindle year to year, they want to have a way to market the show, which I understand. So it puts us in a position of um, coming up with an idea that we want to do, but then trying to tweak it in a way that seems like it would have a one-sheet, but right. successful half-hours don't have one-sheets. No. When you look at Raymond or Friends or Seinfeld, or none of them have, the or mm-hmm. as I say, Modern Family. So... Um, that's tricky, because and I, and I like big shows. But Better Off Ted was a big show. Um, but I also feel like the audiences don't necessarily embrace them on network television. Mm-hmm. They might embrace them more on cable. So the shows I have are a little... Um, they can be bigger in tone once they're written, but they're not going to be big pitches. Hmm. So uh, Which that, is difficult in itself. I mean, that's a real yeah. challenge. It, yeah, it made it a harder... Pitch, but it was kind of, and it, it was an odd thing, because you don't want the tail wagging the dog, you don't want the, you don't, you don't want to just have a big pitch, which you think you can sell, but you don't believe that you're, that's, that's going to be an interesting show, or, so I heard the term this year, which was a disposable hook, which I thought was really interesting, <laughs> which is, yeah, so the idea of what is, how are you going to sell your show, and then that disappears, Right. By episode four. Which and is so crazy. It is crazy. Because everybody's
0: <laughs> talking about right. it. We
1: know it's disposable. Right. But
3: I, I've been out of the you know pitching for the last couple of years. Is that a, is that a real difference from, say, last year or
1: the it, year before? Different for me, yeah. I right. mean, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, it is different. Yeah, I, I had not heard that. It, it didn't seem as important in, in previous right. years. Any idea what's driving that? I think it's because there's... They want to make noise. You know, they feel like once their show gets on or, or uh, even before it gets on, that they can show it to their test audience and show it to their bosses and show it to their people in New York and say, aliens living next door, whatever the big <laughs> idea is, it presents easier than Raymond, if you were to pitch Raymond, which I th- don't think you could sell now, which would be a guy and his wife. You know, Even with what the that talent, you couldn't do it. Yeah. So... Um, that's that made it harder to sell. And I have both my ideas were not they're not big ideas. So one is a multi-camera that I developed for Talent, and then one is a single-camera. So one's, the multi-camera is going to be at NBC, uh, and the uh, single is going to be at uh, Fox. Okay. So you know the other thing is they all want to be in the multi-camera business. You know I haven't done that in many years. I like multi-camera. You know I think one is more like theater, one is more filmic, but I enjoy multi-camera. It's just it's hard to uh, get traction with one. It's been- hard to get them any place except CBS so but you know, they all say they want them, so we'll see. <laughs> were,
0: was your approach to pitching differently uh, different this
1: year than it has been in the past because of this disposable hook? If I knew now, if I knew then what I know now, it would have been. I yeah. didn't know until deeper into pitch season what <laughs> was probably. going on. Yeah. So I probably, if I were start now pitching for this season, I would have different ideas. I mm-hmm. would come up with kind of bigger. You know, it still have to be something I would be invested in, but a bigger hook, I think, than uh, than I did starting out. I just thought, because based on my my history, and everybody I know, and shows that I watch, that you can come in with a good idea. Well, uh, you know, and, and you can say, based on a track record, it it'll probably be executed in a way that you know they'll feel comfortable with. That that would generally be enough, mm-hmm. but. Uh, this year again, I didn't know until several months into it that that's it's a different right. animal this year. Right. And when you look at the shows that NBC bought, they all have pretty big hooks. I mean, the show that yeah. I'm on go on is it's a big idea, you know, about a guy dealing with loss, and right. he's in a group dealing with loss. Uh, not a obvious um, concept for a comedy, so that you know that is a big idea. And it also has huge talent attached, yes. which right. it feels like you really have to, have right. to stack the deck. This, Although they did year. not sell it. With Matt attached oh, no. to it yeah really
3: oh, cool. well there seems to be
1: you know in cable
3: there's a big change and I wonder if it's something similar that seemed to be driving this which was in cable what seemed to happen is sort of overnight, um, people realized, oh, I can watch this on my DVR, mm-hmm. and suddenly the numbers changed. You know, for USA, which was always you know number one, suddenly you know about half a million people dropped out of the live uh, demo yeah. uh, for like all their shows across the board. And pe- you know, the, the, the plus sevens still showed up, and everybody's watching it, but they're just DVRing it. So there was a big change there, and I think you see it on a lot of the reality shows, like uh, America's. Whatever it is, uh, top model. Mm-hmm. Um, I noticed they have now like a live thing where you can, you know, uh, tweet in yeah. your answers and stuff like that. And I think that's obviously just to drive in this live audience. So I wonder if something similar happened in the network shows. To, cause I know it, it's very cyclical in these things. I mean, one year you'll be, you know, all we want are, you know, straight up episodic. We don't want any kind of mythology. And then all of a sudden you're getting, no, we want lost. We want a lot of mythology. So
1: I think the people who run networks are all big fans of cable. <laughs> <The things laughs> it's, um, sure. it's a really different because you cannot do on network what you can do on cable. Mm. So um, you end up with a watered-down version of something yeah. rather than networks have their own brand of what works. Like, I think the perfect show for this would be Modern Family. It works really well mm. on network and it's a network show, but they want to chase cable shows, and then they have to really dial down because of standards. They have to really dial down what they can do, both sexual content and just language. Yeah. Uh, and so it comes off looking just like something that would have existed twenty years ago. You know, yeah. it doesn't feel like uh, of this era.
0: Well, I'm I'm kind of
1: curious. I mean.
0: Jeff and uh, Lauren, you guys have kind of been in the middle of this from different perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, And Jeff, let's start with you. But, you know, because of this shift where these cable networks realize that people are kind of downloading shows and watching them all at once, uh, has this changed the storytelling that you're doing in the room? Uh, I mean, all, all these USA shows are pretty episodic. Well, they do have. You guys yeah, do have I mean, big we've arcs. changed
3: it to a large extent. It was really interesting because th- this was the year. I mean, it was before you know mm-hmm. we sort of, you know, all the shows sort of on mass lost this this let's say half million in the demo, and there was sort of you know universal panic. And the real question that I thought was fascinating is why? Why did what what happened? And the answers were what I thought were, were, were fascinating. <laughs> I don't necessarily agree with them, but uh, you know what, what came back is we're not surprising the audience enough. Um, sort of our dictate became we need we need the shows to have that moment of you know people going to work the next day and going no don't tell me don't tell me I I, I don't know what happened last night on you know on wh- whichever show. Um, so it, it was really interesting just in terms of. You know we gotta we gotta change it up we gotta surprise the audience constantly um so it was almost you know almost a dictate to let's let us let us have a let's have a mid season or you know let's have a season finale like every episode yeah. <laughs> which uh you know which definitely changes changes your approach um you know beyond that uh I'm just trying to think if there's anything else that really that really drove it. it it was more just you know i th- i think there was let's you know let 's excite people let's have, let, let, let's also go to events let 's do big events uh, casting became a big thing let's let's mm-hmm. let's cast a name so that people will show up to it so that, that's what we saw you know in our in ours and I wonder lauren uh, again
0: about do no harm, which i mean David Schilner has worked in network primarily mm-hmm. but has a real cable kind of brain. Right. Uh, how Beta are brain. you guys balancing
3: that?
2: You know, it's interesting. I found this in both, sort of speaking to uh, both subjects. Sorry. Okay. Don't mean to accost you. <laughs> um you know, I found this in both pitching and uh, in my experience at Do No Harm that there's a big difference in what the networks think they want and what they actually want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so uh, Do No Harm is a great example in that we were told at the beginning that every episode should basically be a standalone episode. You know, um, you should be able to come in and out of the show. You know, and be able to basically watch any episode and and understand the stories we're telling. The problem is, is that by the time we would get to episode six or seven, they would be saying, well, we need to pick up that storyline again from episode four. We need to understand what happened at the end of episode six. (laughs) So what you get is a series that starts out being more procedural, more standalone. And by the end, I mean, uh, I'm currently co-writing the finale. And it is, I mean, just pipe after pipe after pipe after pipe that we're trying to carry per network notes, which is just an interesting thing. It's a shift in what they think they want and then what they eventually need after they start reading all the material. (laughs) And I think that's, I mean, uh, you know, hopefully it's a credit, fingers crossed, it's a credit to the writing and the storytelling that the stories we're telling are interesting enough that they want us to follow up on them. Um, You know, but uh, it's funny because I I found a very, very similar thing talking in the difference between... um, sort of network and cable. And, you know, I found a very similar thing in in pitching in the shows that I sold to CBS, which is um, I would consider myself a, uh, like a, well, I guess most writers are, sort of character-driven, um, I sort of suck at plot. I say this to every showrunner that I meet with. Like, plot is just not... My forte, um, and maybe that's why I didn't have as many meetings this year. <laughs> come to think of it, um, you know. Yeah, but stop I stop telling people. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm really not good at storytelling. Um, no, you know, it's uh, obviously I just go from a place of character. It's how I write my own stuff, and and basically two years in a row, I did not learn my lesson after the first year. You know, I would meet and and sell these shows to CBS, who would say we're so much more interested in going a character-driven route this year. You know, like we have enough procedurals on the air. We had, you know, and by the end of the pitch process it was like you wrote a great medical show but it's too many characters mm. and it's it's a frustrating thing and I think that we all deal with that both in in development and in the shows that we write, yeah. you know, is that they, they change their mind, they're just not it's not a consistent thing, you know, so Interesting.
0: Uh, I want to shift back for a moment, we were talking about what a great room you have on Do No Harm and uh, Jeff, your rooms are notoriously happy places.
3: Yeah um, <laughs> they, they are actually, We you know talk, talking about that, um you know, like I said, there's four of my guys back there plus my assistant over here, so they could probably speak to it better than I could. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, we, we do things a little bit differently, I think. Um, just talk about the process in the room for a second. Sure. Uh, one thing I do, I, I don't know if it's universally done. I haven't really heard of it anywhere else, is, you know, one of the real challenges um, I think on any show for me as, as the creator is to kind of keep my voice in it as long as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I started doing this when I was just writing my own stuff, which is I use a tape recorder. Um, so, what we'll do really is, um, you know, we'll start off. We'll we'll you know get together in the room. We'll pitch out ideas and things like that, and we'll we'll pick a couple ideas we like. Um, I'll turn it over to the room then and say, okay, we like this idea, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, And then I usually lay out some waypoints. It's like, ooh, you know, for for those, I'll I'll talk about white collar since you guys some of you may have a a reference point to it. But it's like, oh, I really like that. What I'd really like to see is, uh, you know, let's have a dinner scene between, you know. Uh, Peter neil and sarah let 's I really want to see a dinner scene there that would be neat let 's put mozzie doing something here um, you know so we 'll lay those out i 'll leave the room alone and come back and they will have kind of you know brushed out a, a kind of the, 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 the rough um, all the rough acts we 'll talk about that, hone them a little bit more we turn in our outline you know get get the notes back and then at that point you know i 'll lay in any more detail I want, but once we 've got that. You know, outline the, in the, the rooms, put it up on the board usually without you know, just minimum input from me. We'll start off I'll take the tape recorder and we'll literally start with, okay, this is you know, episode 406 interior, Neil's apartment, night. You know, Neil and Mozzie are are sitting on the couch talking, and they'll stop the recorder and say, "Okay, what are they talking about?" And we'll we'll beat it out, and we get it. We'll say they're discussing. You know, Mozzie's really upset uh, with the fact that they, you know, hasn't pulled a job in a while, and he feels like he's getting rusty. So we'll go through with that level of detail. It usually takes us about a day and a half or two days. We'll end up with about uh, two hours worth of tape. But what's great about it for me is, you know, they'll also have their outline to go off on. We send the writers off. They, you know, they've got the outline, the traditional outline, plus the recorder. And what I like about it is it keeps my voice in it you know, that far down the road. There's been a few times or more than a few times where I haven't read the final script, but I'll take the notes call and know exactly what happened just because you know, I've laid it out in the recorder clear enough. And I think the writers like it um, to a certain extent because... You know, it, it takes, uh, it sort of takes the pressure of being alone on the page when you're sitting there with an outline. You know, you play it back and you can hear, you know, when we're laughing, and hear my inflection and things like that. So I think it's, uh, it, it seems to be, you know, the writers seem to like it. So, um, you know, I think that, and uh, unlike, probably a lot a lot of showrunners um, the, the one thing I get mad about is when people turn in scripts early <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I'm always a guy saying you know what take the weekend get it right you know no point the one thing I've discovered in this industry is you know never ever, ever get points for early. You only get points for good. So in my case, you rarely get points for even on time. So (laughs) it's usually a little bit late, but if they love it, then then you're good. Uh, Victor, tell us about
0: some of the rooms you have been in, whether they're shows you've run or created or shows
1: that you've just worked on. What do you think was a a functional room for Um, you? I've worked in a lot of functional rooms. The show that I'm on now, Go On, is a pretty functional room. Very small staff. Which I uh, there's probably six, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes there's as few as three in a rewrite. You know, in comedy we spend a lot more time together. I think we do our rewriting together, mm-hmm. so we're together ten, twelve hours a day. Uh, the writer that go, you know, there's a writer that goes off on their own script, obviously. But so sometimes they divide into rooms, and it's they're very small, which are nice if you have the right people in mm-hmm. there. I, on my shows, usually get too nervous to have too small a room, and I'm worried it's going to get too <laughs> quiet. So I end up with bigger rooms, and uh, that can be great, and it can be problematic. I think if I do another show, I would try and do smaller rooms. I, my, what I, I usually staff a show, which I think is typical in comedy. It's 10 to 12 writers. Some of those are teams. Um when I worked on Earl, Greg Garcia, we used to divide up those uh, rooms. He had 18 writers the first couple of years wow. at Earl, and so he had like three rooms going. Um, I generally, on my shows, don't divide up rooms, but I'm going to try that. And part of it is I just get too nervous of what the other room is doing. And <laughs> if they're chasing a direction, you know, I just don't want them to go off for hours without checking in. So um, generally, I uh, keep my rooms together. Uh, so in comedy, you know, it's, I describe it as a controlled dinner party. You know, everyone's having a good time. There's a lot of laughter, but you're trying to control it in terms of you're moving. You're trying to get, accomplish something, and in looser rooms, less is accomplished because it can quickly, with ten comedy writers, all interesting, smart people talking about stories, uh, can get off track very quickly and there's a lot of laughter and it's you don't want to be the guy always saying okay this is really fun but it's really not productive let's go back so but as the showrunner, that's sort of your job so you're trying to um, steer things and I think with you know I'm listening to Jeff I think the problem with a bigger room is you become an editor more yeah. of a, than a participant what do you, do you
3: problem uh, like you know if I had to list my superpowers it would probably be like pitching and the room you know Nothing else. But um, the one thing I've found is, like, for some reason, even if they don't talk, the more actual bodies in the room, the more energy I have to put out, which I don't know if you felt that. More
1: bodies means more energy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. even if nobody's talking,
3: the difference between having four people in the room versus, say, 12 people in the room, it exhausts me more. And I don't Hmm. know why. You
1: know, I think it it exhausts me, too, because um, comedy rooms are active. I don't know if drama rooms are as active. But it does make me... um, Have to concentrate more on what's being said, and it does take me out of thinking. You know, sometimes they think, let me have five minutes and I can maybe figure this out. But I'm listening to this person and that person, you want to treat them all with respect, and this makes right. sense. That's slightly off. That's great for a different episode. This person hasn't spoken in a while. You want to encourage them. <laughs> really? But <laughs> but it's um, it does end up taking you out until then you you know yeah. you can look at the draft and you have time alone at the end of the day and go through it. So
3: Yeah I was always surprised like what a skill set actually running a room is. <laughs> You know, just in terms of, uh, like you said, sort of being political with everybody and not, not being too dictatorial, because you don't want to lose out on good ideas. But at the same time, there's nothing worse than just, you know, you get a run on it, everybody's got it, you're moving, you're moving, you got that one person that's either going, eh, wait right. a minute, so wait, I'm confused, yeah. slams you to a stop, or somebody like tries to take you know, in, a, in that tangent which usually a good idea. We'll save that for the the gag reel. Yeah. And, uh, then you've got other people who, you know, the worst part is when somebody throws an idea that's kind of good and you're like, Oh, it's going to kill the momentum, but I kind of want to go with that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I always evaluate writers by the amount of real estate they take up versus the amount of stuff that gets in. So if we have writers that are quiet, they don't take up a lot of real estate. Uh, I'm talking about real estate in the room. uh, If you have a group of 10, eight writers, uh, but when they speak, if they have a pretty good ratio, you know they have a lot of interesting right. stuff to say. That's great. You know, the least effective writers are people that talk a lot and aren't that helpful because right. you would <laughs> rather that they just listened a little mm-hmm. bit more, and so you can, you know, <laughs> get more done. I'm thinking specifically of uh, Better
0: Off Ted and Andy Richter, which. You know, it turned out episode after episode of really strong material, both funny and good storytelling. What was the makeup of those rooms, if you can
1: recall? What were you looking for when you hired, and what did you get? You know, most of I think, and it's probably similar in drama. I imagine mostly what's hard to find are people who can tell good stories, and that's extremely valuable. So uh, that's what I'm looking for: is people who can tell good stories. Comedy. Not Don't that... hire
2: me. <laughs> <laughs> <Fairly>. <laughs>
1: I was going to say that. Comedy is never that hard. I mean, you, with comedy writers, you can find enough funny stuff in a room that comes up generally, and so I'm usually not worried about that. On a lower level, I'll, fi- I'll hire people who are just funny. Um, but at the upper level, I have high expectations. They should be funny. They should be able to turn in good drafts. But they should really be able to tell an interesting story that we haven't seen a million times before. So, um, you know, I generally hire people who are in their, I would say, in their 40s. They have some experience, and they know what works and what doesn't work. And they're not going to waste a lot of time reinventing a wheel, necessarily. Uh, you know, there was a. Um, I've hired many people that I've worked with before. I'm sure all showrunners do. You just, you know, if you find the right people, you stay with them. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. both those rooms are rooms of about uh, 10 or 12 people.
0: Uh, and while we are talking about rooms, uh, Lauren, tell us about the West Wing and your experience <laughs> there. Uh, you were there for quite a while, working your way through the ranks.
2: Yeah, I was there all seven years. Wow. Um, I started as an intern, so I wasn't there the first full season. I was there for about eight weeks. Um, answering phones, mm-hmm. and then came back, uh, finished my senior year of college, and then came back season two as a uh, as a writer's PA, writer assistant, researcher, staff writer, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really, I mean, it was the perfect education. It was an amazing education. Um, you know, a lot of it. Uh, you know, you, you work your ass off at the beginning no matter what, even if working your ass off is getting coffee and memorizing coffee orders, and that's what it was for me the first year. Um, but one of the things, um, Aaron Sorkin's process, I'm not sure there is much process, uh, but part of it was that he, uh, he uh, types like a madman and then prints out pages, and one of the jobs of the writer's assistant is just to go through it read it and try to make it make sense um, <laughs> and this is grammatical this is you know just making sure he liked to change character names halfway through episodes <laughs> you know so it was just trying to like literally do the, the, the fine work obviously I wasn't doing any storytelling as I was editing um, but it was that was amazing because it was my job to read and and deal with scripts um, and that was fantastic um, and just a great education and then you get a real window in his head obviously it's sometimes a messed up window, but yes, no, it's, it is, um, you know, my time there was uh, four years with Aaron and three years with John Wells, and they were both amazing bosses um, in very, very different ways, and I mean, Aaron Sorkin is, in my mind, one of sort of the natural geniuses of of writing, and, um, you know, I often say, because he's had a lot of work since then, some of it's been flawed, but I drank the Kool-Aid, and I, I believe that he is a, a just natural talent that... Um, Is amazing. Uh, Not much of a... I don't know that he would call himself a showrunner. He wasn't... That wasn't what he was so interested in. He hired Kevin Falls at the time to run The Room, um, and Kevin was amazing. Uh, When John Wells came in, John runs his shows like he would run a business, in my opinion. And um, we went from... Uh, in Aaron's room, being there from 10 a.m. to sometimes 2 p.m., when Aaron would be like, I'm tired, go home, to sometimes midnight or 1 in the morning. And um, the way John ran the show was that we met three times a week from, like, noon to 3, and that was it. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because, um, you know, most stuff on, on the first four years of the West Wing was really done as a group, you know? Like, we would come up with stories as a group. We'd hand them over to Aaron. Aaron would write the scripts. Um, in John's room, I learned a lot.
0: Let me interrupt for there okay. for one second. Um, and we have heard a little bit about the John Wells method because he still uses it. And yes. That's why he can do three shows at a time. Yes. <laughs> um, but when under those first four years... How detailed were these stories that the room would come up with when you would hand them off to Sarkin?
2: Very detailed. Um, You know, we had uh, a lot of writers at any given time, probably 11 or 12, and we would normally be given individual storylines for characters. Um, I, at the time, was the youngest on the staff um, and oftentimes got the Donna storylines just because I was like (laughs) most closely related to her, I suppose. And um, you would write very, very detailed. We tried not to write in dialogue. We were encouraged not to write in dialogue. But you would write in prose, um, literally, this is the part of the teaser that Donna is in. This is the part of Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4. And uh, incredibly detailed, we would order the memos, literally hand Aaron a stack that said, Act 1. Aaron's brilliance was to start writing Act 1 and somehow, before getting the Act four memos, know where he wanted to end the story and tie it all together um, that is uh, that 's where I was always amazed. Um, my husband in the audience, hi, honey, uh, <laughs> produced the show, and uh, the, you know one of the things that I always heard from him is so often we would actually get scenes and uh, run them down to set, and they would shoot them that day or the next day, and they 'd be shooting Act one, shooting Act two. And Aaron still wouldn't have written Act 3 and Act 4. And then somehow the episode would become amazing. And that's... I mean, no one should run a show like that. Ever. (laughs) Ever. Um, But it was really, you know... talk about the power of storytelling. It's just like, you know, it was in his head and he could tie things together, so.
0: And this is the sort of question that I hate because it's not interesting to most writers, but (laughs) how was credit established on these?
2: Credit was usually established, um, you know, almost all, I think starting season two, you'll see a lot of um, story by teleplay by. Uh The teleplay is always by Aaron. Uh, I don't know that it was ever by anyone else. Um, And then usually it was whoever did the A story. You know, so it was actually, you know, uh, I think Aaron came under some fire, (laughs) a lot of fire, (laughs) uh, you know, for, um, there were uh, taking credit for other people's stories and all of this. And I think starting in season two, he worked really hard to try to dole out credit equally and give us all
3: turnover in the room. Yes. I would think that would, that would probably account for some of those. That
2: was, there was a lot of, uh, from season one to season two, I think only two or three writers, uh, stayed around. And, um, you know, occasionally, you know, it was a frustrating... uh, For me, being very low level, you know, I was in the room as a researcher and was allowed to participate and write. Um, For me, it was an incredible education. If I'd been there as a co-exec, I would have been frustrated as hell. I mean, there's just no, you know, um, you just want more. Um, You're not there for the learning experience that I was there for. You're there to write and to do your job. And when you feel like you're being held back, I can imagine that you want to... Move on, you know.
0: Uh, and then under Wells, uh, yes. when you guys were coming in three days a week, yeah, um, <laughs> it was very from, difficult. Yeah, from what I understand, it though it's a, a very collaborative room, and everyone gives notes on everyone else's scripts, and mm-hmm. they're all you know met with equal measure. Was that how it was then? Too?
2: Absolutely. You know, we <laughs> we came in three days a week. Um, you know, we would. Uh, John did this amazing thing. He happened to do it in Hawaii, which made it even more amazing, where he would fly all the writers uh, out to Hawaii. The show would fly all the writers out to Hawaii at the beginning of the year. And we would basically meet there for a week um, in beautiful, with a beautiful backdrop, and we would plot out the season, the whole season. And so when we came back, we would have a great idea of the stories that we wanted, at least the sort of big stories that we wanted and where we wanted things to end. And so you had such a map that it allowed you really to come up with your sort of basic storylines and then it was up individually to um to a writer to go off and beat them out on their own i've never been on another show that does done that you know now i'm in a room that we beat out every single you know beat of every single story and that's easier i like it that way you know <laughs> as you say as a staff writer there's nothing like being pushed off and being like you go come up with stories um So, uh, but yes, it was very, very collaborative. In your time off, you were expected to keep up with cuts, keep up with the drafts, keep up with everything. So it wasn't, you know, there were several people who joined the staff as consultants believing that they would only work three days a week, and that was never the case, you know, because there was just a lot to keep up with.
0: And can you... um before we move on point to things i mean obviously this was an enormous uh, learning situation for you can you point to some specific things that you took to your subsequent jobs that you picked up in those in this job
2: yes um you know hmm. it's interesting because my my career you know unlike these two i've never run a show i've never had a show on the air that's mine I've, um and so for me, my my career has been um, sort of a series of events, hopefully, that will lead me to a place where I can run a show of my own. Um, and that is, it's a lot of what I learned at the West Wing. And, you know, I'm actually working with um, several writers now who've worked under John. And when I met with them, and when I met with David Schulner on Do No Harm, it was, uh, they had this... Idea that to be on a TV show doesn't have to be crazy. It doesn't have to be insane. We don't make our best stories at 3 a.m. when we're all tired and we've chucked a script. I mean, stuff happens. Of course it does. You know, stuff happens last minute. Um, but it sounds like you know both of these rooms run the same way, which is like if we're sane, if we're happy, if we're well-fed, you know, like we're better, <laughs> happier writers. And so I would say that you know, especially from the last three years of West Wing, it was like, you know. I've been on several shows between uh, The West Wing and Do No Harm, which were not run like this, which were run as, you know, like, oh, shit, we start, you know, right. uh, shooting in two days. We better <laughs> focus on a script, you know? And that's not the best way to write television. I mean,
3: multicam is sort of
1: notorious for doing mm-hmm. a- Well, multicam, or, you know, yeah, because it's kind of built into the process. You have a run-through, you know, two or three days a week, and so your run-through, depending on who's directing and how confident the show is, you know, if Jimmy Burroughs is directing, your run-through's at noon, and if most other people, your run-through could be at five, uh, and so you don't get back into the room, then you get your notes and all of that. You might not start your day, really, until seven, so Mm -hmm. it's really two days. Your day before the run-through is you're trying to get ahead, then you see your run-through, and then you go back, and depending (laughs) on what your, you know, how much of that script is surviving, you can end up quite late, because you're not even really starting until about dinner time, so. Uh, And while we're talking about
0: it, um, tell us about some of these early experiences, I mean i i read off in introducing you alf and evening shade which were some <laughs> early credits yeah um what were you doing just prior to these? And then tell us tell us a little bit about working on these well, Alpha pretty popular first shows. Well,
1: Alf was the first show, so there was no prior. I mean, but right. prior to that, I worked in TV commercials. And, well, that's uh, what I'm curious
0: about. How did you yeah, gain... Yeah, I was a uh,
1: PA in TV commercials, and then I eventually I did it for like six years to make a living as I was writing and eventually became a prop man, and now I'm generally mm-hmm. the only person in a writer's room who has crew experience, which is actually oh, yeah. a valuable mm-hmm. experience. So oh, um, I, I was a prop about. man for several years, and uh, the way I broke in was, uh, you know, you write a bunch of scripts and by the fifth one or sixth one, it's good enough that you can present it. And, uh, you know, I do what most young writers do is you try and have lunch with everyone and get anyone who will read your script and you put 125 feelers out and one of them hits. And this one got to an assistant on ALF who liked, uh, actually I had written this um two sides of a phone call that amused her as though I was trying to get them to read my script. That's so I wrote great. my side and then their side. And she thought that was funny enough to call me and say, hey, send over your material, which I did. And then she gave that to her boss, which was Paul Fusco, who was Alf. And he liked it. I came in, I pitched, and I got a freelance assignment, and then they put me on staff. That's and great. so wow. The hardest th-
0: back when freelance assignments yeah. existed. <laughs> I don't have many of them. It's no. true. And,
1: and, uh, so the hardest job is the first job, I think. Yeah. And then it, once you're In it's hard to go, I think, directing too. It's hard to go from not directing to directing because who's going to give you that break? And and similarly, I think it's hard to go from you know not being on a staff to being on a staff.
0: Do you do you recall what your spec scripts were? uh,
1: What they were, yeah. Um, I had a uh, head of the class. I had a Family Ties. These are going back a while. Well, uh, this was
0: back when you had to write a spec of
1: an, yeah, an you existing wrote a spec, series. I mean, too. I still feel like specs are most valuable when they're existing yeah. uh, shows. And people, there's a lot of pressure on young writers, which I don't understand. Uh, there's no, original material. material. Yeah, original yeah material. I,
3: I would agree. I mean, what always surprises me is, you know, I, I, there's, such a, there's such a huge separation to me for somebody who can write write that voice, the established voice versus their own voice. And I kind of want you to be able to write my voice. Right, mm-hmm. you know, that's what the job to, right. is. Right. Yeah, and so th- th- it is interesting with, with with studio networks because yeah, if somebody's got a, uh, you know, if if somebody's got a Dexter, I would rather read that than right. necessarily a, an original. I mean, the originals are helpful, but I don't, I don't know how. Uh, Y- you know what a, yeah. how, how they are as an indicator, yeah and it,
1: so. I, I would never hire someone off an original pilot doesn 't really? for what Jeff is saying it just doesn 't make sense uh, it, it could be a good pilot first of all it 's very hard to write good pilots, yeah. so as a new writer you shouldn 't be writing pilot i mean if you really want to great, but it 's really hard to write a good pilot, mm-hmm. and it doesn 't tell the showrunner anything because, as jeff said you 're trying to find how well that person can find your voice, not their own well, what well, their own voice to, is to you guys uh,
3: you know, lauren victor. Um, you know, I mean, at USA, for example, and Fox, you know, as a studio, they want originals. I mm-hmm. mean, I could bitch all I want about how I want uh, I want a spec, but they want to see originals. Is that, is that sort of what you find yeah. too?
2: Yeah, same thing. You know, it, it. I had my. I wrote a West Wing before I ever um, had an agent, and uh, but then as soon as I got an agent, I wrote a Desperate Housewives. I was mm-hmm. trying to, you know, find what was popular on television, and uh, eventually, when I started meetings, they all wanted an original. That's interesting because exactly.
1: that seems to have been a change. I mean, yeah, it is. To change because we didn't used to read originals. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, I'll always read two things. I'll read an original because everyone has one, and then I'll always want to read, you know, a spec existing uh, show, which are always more valuable. Right. I
3: think think networks and studios may, I think part of it is this tough thing because you can read an amazing original or an amazing spec and then the writer just doesn't work. Right. And um, I think. For studio networks, it's sort of like divining tea leaves, and they—I don't think they've been able to figure out what the connection is yet between the script and the writer. So I think, you know, there's this big push. Like people—they'll send me stuff. Oh, this guy wrote a—you know—this guy wrote a play. Read the play. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that doesn't really help me. Right. You no know, play doesn't help me. Or you know, oh, this—here's a poem. We actually on Shasta Mcnasty, which is my first show. Uh, if anybody remembers that, but. Uh, uh, you know, I'm trying to think back, back, back then. Yeah, we actually, uh, you know, I, I heard one guy off of a play he wrote. Um, you know, which, which was, a, was a short play um, on uh, White Collar season one. Uh, you know, I, I heard somebody off of they'd written. Uh, it, was, it was very funny. It was a, uh, it was a page from Marianne's diary um, on the island, <laughs> but it was literally like five pages. You know, and we were like, oh, let's 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 hire that. Uh, uh, let's hire him. Let's see how it works. Um, yeah. Did, it not, did, it want, did it work? Did it work? Did not work. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, so it, it is interesting, but I would say, like, it, you know, if, if, you're, if you're thinking about, I want to become a writer, I think, I, I think currently, yeah, write a good original and write a good spec.
1: Yeah, hmm. have so, both.
0: Yeah. yeah. And just to put a button on um, uh, your early sitcom experiences, uh, tell us what you took from them and what well, you brought to creating like... your own
1: stuff, too. Oh, I'm sorry. And what you brought from that to creating your own um, material. Um, you know, what I, and I still feel like I learn from different showrunners. And I've, I've run several of my own and other people's shows, and I've been in other rooms. And, you know, even on this show, I feel like I'm learning from these showrunners. Everybody does it slightly differently. Uh, and you try and take, you know, what works and what doesn't work. So, you know, for me, I would say the first, uh, so I did ALF, then I did, uh, this was back in the day where you worked your way up fairly quickly because every network had 12 sitcoms on the air. Right. <laughs> uh, so it was a seller's market, not a buyer's market. So, once you got in, you could work, you know, you could get a fair amount of work and go from show to show, and you would move up fairly quickly. Um, so, my agent at the time uh, said, um, Don't ever do a pilot until you're ready to run your show, which was smart. And, yeah. um, you know, and she said, I'm going to say no a lot, which was also true, because <laughs> what would happen, and it happens now, is people come to young writers and say, Hey, why don't you do a pilot this year? Her perspective was, why do you want to be the number three on your own show? Which is with the case if you sell your own pilot. So I spent many years just in the trenches, working my way up. So I did Alf. I did a short look. Then that uh, was the last year of Alf. Tom Patchett took me to his next show, which was Baghdad Cafe, Uh, and then uh, that was also short lived. Um, And then I ended up at uh, Dinosaurs. And so just started working my way up. And the first show that I ran was Evening Shade. I'd been there for a year prior to running it, uh, and that was a Difficult show with a difficult uh, star, although a fantastically deep cast. It had 13 regulars. Wow. You know, Hal Holbrook, uh, Charles Durning, just you know, uh, Ossie Davis, uh, Michael Jeter. A, a cast you could not. One reason it went off the air. You could not afford right. an, a, ca- a cast like that anymore. Um, and so, you know, I had been there for a year. I kind of got in the lay of the land. And running a show then was um, there was a lot. That was a, at a time when there were a lot of difficult shows. Roseanne was on, uh, uh, Grace Under Fire, uh, Sybil Shepherd had a show, not to single any of these people out. So your goal there was you wanted to make the lead of your show happy and be able to weave stories and tell stories and keep the train on the tracks and keep your star happy. Uh, and if you could do that, then you could survive into the, into <laughs> the next show or survive into the next week. Right. Um, So I just learned, you know, just watching showrunners, you know, I I think you're not ready to do it until you've watched several people do it, both good and bad, and you take a lot of good, uh, hopefully you take a lot of good qualities that people have, there's a lot of really smart showrunners you learn from, and then when it's your time to do your own thing, you can have a a way that you like to at least try it, and that can completely change when you're six shows in, Yeah.
0: Interesting.
1: Uh, Jeff, what was
0: your experience? Did you did you run Shasta McNasty? Yeah, I created Shasta McNasty. And, and <laughs> um,
3: ran it, though. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, t- uh, here, here's what happened. I, I was a feature guy. Yeah. <clears throat> and it, it created kind of a bizarre, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, I, I came out of features, which created sort of this bizarre paradox in my life. Um, you know so uh, Neil Moritz, who you guys may know he's a producer on uh, Fast and the Furious and know what, you know i know what you did last summer um I met him before he was Neil Moritz and uh I'd written a, a a small comedy which I'd actually written to do myself i was gonna it, it was like a guy gets trapped in the convenience a guy and his girlfriend get trapped in a convenience store um and I was gonna go shoot it myself, and a buddy of mine i was in Col- living in Colorado where I grew up, and a buddy of mine out here was like Oh, let me register that for you at the WGA. And he read Oh, my agents like it. And so I ended up selling it out and had to tell my my $5,000 cast in Colorado that, uh, sorry, guys, I actually sold it. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, But anyway, uh, you, you know, so I said, it came out and it ended up coming out as Held Up with Jamie Foxx. Um, years later it finally got made after a couple of false stars. But that's why I met Neil. Neil was producing that. And again, this is before uh, you know, volcano or any of those things. And um, you know, we were pretty good friends at that point and he came to me and he said, Hey, have you ever done television? I'm like, No, don't know anything about it. He said, Well, you know, he was he just sold volcano, so he was pretty hot. And he goes, I just you know, I was at UPN and I just sold this this idea to him. And I go, What's the idea? And he's like, um, it's uh, the monkeys meets the beastie boys. And I wasn't. I mean, he said, like, "I have no idea." <laughs> uh, so he's like, "I want you to come in on it." So I came in, and you know, it was uh, Dean Valentine and um, you know Tom Noonan back then. And you know, I remember Tom said, "Look, what we really want is not a." Uh, we don't want a water cooler show We want uh, what we call a water fountain show We want kids the next day to be Oh my god, did you see what happened on, on that show last night um, So I, you know, I'd never done it before And it, it seemed sort of like an interesting challenge you know, Off of features, so whatever I, you know, Came up with it You know, Ended up writing Actually, this is sort of an interesting uh, If I want to throw this out But uh, they hired me to write a pilot So I write the pilot and um, even, you know, UPN and Sony was a studio was like, this is, it's too foul. We can't do it. <laughs> okay. So I didn't want it to die. So I said, I'll write a second pilot. So I write a second pilot. And they correctly said, you know what? This is a great fifth episode. It's not a pilot. Okay. So I came up with this third episode, which was uh, Vern Troyer just come off of uh, Austin Powers. And he was kind of, kind of big news. Um, and uh, I ended up meeting him through, through a friend, came up with this idea of Vern wearing a chip hat. Where they put the guacamole in the middle and, you know, burns the, you know, mini me. Um and so, oh, I got this idea. So I kinda pitched it out. And uh Tom Noonan over at the network loved it. And Sony was like, Dear God, no. <laughs> um so what I did is I wrote the script, I, I gave it to Sony, and Sony was like, No, there's absolutely no way this will ever get made in the history of of television. So what but I but I knew Tom would like it because we developed a pretty good you know, he was uh, president of development there at the time. So what I did is we went in, I went into his office for this meeting to tell him why he couldn't have the script and I covertly left a copy next to the, mm. next to the couch. And I was leaving, I called him and I said, hey, you know, hey Tom, you know that script that they don't want you to read, yeah, I screwed up and left a copy in your office. He called me that night and he goes, I love this thing. <laughs> so it turned into this weird political thing. But anyway, we, we got on the air. So you know, we had a full season, I think it was you know, routinely called the worst, the worst television show in the history of television. <laughs> it, it was a great experience for me though. I had no idea what what I was doing, but, you know, um, you know like you, Victor, I, I had a production background. I would uh, um, you know, I was an editor, pay-per-view for a while, um, and then I came out and actually uh, DP'd a couple of Roger Corman films, so I had this you know, sort of production background, so I was, I was very happy with that, you know, and Shasta was great. It was like they were giving me $3 million to do, you know, every week to do, like, a, a mini-movie. I was so excited, um, and then the weirdest thing is uh, I got hired by James Cameron to write the sequel to True Lies at the same time. So it was a very, very weird world where I'd go from Shasta, you know, again vilified as the worst show in the history of television. I'd go over to Lightstorm and be having meetings with Jim. Where I just remember one time we were talking about this opening shot, you know, this opening sequence where we you know, have these guys it was Harry and Helen were, you know, leap they're in a plane and the wings get shot off and it's free falling. There's a big free fall fight. And uh, just as they're about to impact the ground, you know, Harry blows the back end off the plane and, you know, Helen lets go and catches them and their chute opens just as the plane explodes below them. And, uh, okay, great. Jim's like, I love that. I go back to Shasta and they're like, look, it's going to cost us $1,200 to actually have the sink work in the <laughs> Uh um, so it was, it was a very world-world. Uh, the True Lies thing, it actually, uh, 9-11 kind of um, put the kibosh on it. But, uh, um, you know, it, it was a really, you know, I love the experience. I mean, it was just like, as a showrunner, it's like, wow, I haven't done this before. But to your point, they did, yeah, they did exactly the same thing. It was like, I came on I was a producer on the show. And they put a showrunner on top of me. And uh, I just kept threatening to quit. <laughs> And they, so they, you know, so if you watch first season of Shasta, the only season, season of Shasta, it's like Jeff Easton, producer, Jeff Easton, you know, supervising producer, Jeff Easton, you know, co EP. And oh, now he's, exa- <laughs> by episode 10, I was the executive producer. So you really so. worked your way through the ranks no, I just, in 10 I, <laughs> episodes. I, I just didn't really understand it, so I kept sure. understanding. it kept, I like, g- part of it was they told the guy who was the showrunner on top of me, they're like, well, rewrite him. And I'm like, I don't feel comfortable rewriting the showrunner. <laughs> and they, well, I guess our only choice is to promote you. So that was the first experience. And it really was a great experience when we did it. Did a season and uh, you know season of network TV and it was just an awesome training ground.
0: It's interesting that you you know were writing features and you were doing this half hour WB comedy. Did you think you would go one way or the other? I mean people. Uh, Well, it was weird. I loved features. I
3: mean part of it. I loved my life in features. My life in features was get up around noon. You know, got a month or something like that. But then uh, right after that, right after you know I lost uh, uh, Shasta was in '98 and when True Lies went away in 2001. um, you know, I, I was kind of in this. You know, Shast had gone away. Um, you know, I, I did another reality show for Fox called Meet the Marks that lasted about six. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there, I was kind of in this, you know, what do I do? And I got hired to write. Um, uh, rush Hour 3 and the experience was just so sort of abysmal <laughs> where I literally as the writer was not allowed to speak. I was more of a note taker between the producers and you'd know, have one set of producers calling me right after the meeting saying ignore what the other guy said and literally then the, the second phone call would come in and it was really frustrating and on the other hand you know I got uh, Hawaii at NBC where you know I was, I was God in that world and um, that's when I finally went you know I may not have the prestige at the time but uh, I think I like TV.
0: I wanted to ask you guys, before we, before we take questions from the audience, um, what was the stuff that you grew up watching, reading, putting into your eyes and ears uh, that kind of got you excited about writing? Uh, and what, was the, what were the first things also that you kind of recognized, oh, somebody wrote this. Uh, that's something I'd like to do. Can you think of something offhand, Lauren?
2: Um, I do. I will tell um, <laughs> sort of an embarrassing story. Um, Perfect. I love embarrassing stories. Uh, I've mentioned before that uh, on the West Wing, John Wells would take us to Hawaii. Um, And one of the—I love John Wells, but like hanging out socially with your boss all the time is not, you know, necessarily what you want to do. And uh, his—he had his family out there most trips, and so we would meet during the daytime. Then at night, he would go hang with his family, and we would all go drinking. The final year, he uh, did not bring his family and would join us for our drinking escapades, um, which were more like a one drink and go home escapade. Um, And we were at a bar one night, and uh, actually, it's a hotel lobby, a bar at a hotel lobby, and he wanted to play this game of. you know, like, what? Uh, what's your favorite album of all time? Who's your favorite superhero? And we would go around and each answer. Um, and there were, like, a 100 rounds of this. Um, and we got to basically this question, which was, what is the television show that influenced your youth uh, the most? And everyone went around and answered. Um, and I said uh, the truth, which was the first show that I really took... Um, Took an interest in not just as a viewer, but really recognizing all the elements that came into it, Um, the writing and the directing, um, was ER. And uh, I said, you know, I was saying it was, uh, I asked my parents if I could stay up later and watch it with them, because it was on at 10. And I just watched John Wells get whiter and whiter and whiter and whiter. And he said, you understand that you're calling one of my shows the show that influenced you as a child. And I was like, yeah, sorry. And he actually repeated that story. I found myself quoted in... A lot of newspaper articles about that because apparently it was just embarrassing to him Uh, but er is the first one i remember really taking uh notice that there was a script behind it there was you know um it was really the first time that i took notice of guest directors quentin tarantino directed one um in the first season and it was it was just so visually arresting and i remember really sitting and looking at it and going like this is this is interesting this is something that i'd be interested in doing so
1: neat uh, Victor, same... same. Uh, you know, when I was really young, I used to watch Get Smart, and I that changed my life. You know, I thought that was just really funny. It was different from really cheesy comedies at the time. It was like a different level of comedy, and uh, when I was, you know, I don't remember, eight, nine, I tried to write uh, Get Smart, and I wrote about five pages of it, and my mom typed it up, and... Uh, and I wish I had that now. I don't know what happened to it. But it, So it was my first kind of foray into, like, wow, this could be really fun. I see how this works. And then later in life, you know, Cheers was influential, I think, to my generation of comedy writers. Yeah, what um, do you think it was about Cheers? I mean,
0: obviously, this is one that comes up a lot when we talk to well, comedy Well, because I just
1: went back, actually, and read that pilot not too long ago. And it's a really good pilot. It's... Um, I would recommend that, and I'd recommend reading "All in the Family," and, and they don't make television like this anymore, in that it's very theatrical in that it's uh, really one or two scenes. The whole episode is maybe it's one day, it might be two scenes, both those. Uh, and it's just really crisp writing, funny jokes clear characters and then obviously it was perfectly cast so you know and it had all of that going for it week to week uh so it was a different type of television than we were experiencing before you know taxi also i think it was influential i think to a lot of comedy writers uh, not as successful a show; it uh, struggled more, but uh, br- it had that same
0: thing—the very clear characters. Yeah. Which I feel like you read a lot of pilots now, and everything's a little flat or a little blurry. And I don't know if it's worth trying to please too many people or what the story is.
1: Yeah, it could be. Are I mean, I, was- I think there's still—you know—if you, know, if you mm-hmm. read the pilot for Modern Family, or you yeah. know, or, or the show I'm on now, I think go on. You know, people—it depends on the writers. People can write clear characters. Uh, that are well fleshed out. It's hard, you know. It doesn't really happen until you marry it to an actor, and then you discover it together. And within the pilot week, that uh, character and that voice can change and and get sharper, uh, you know. But I and I don't know what the week was like on on Cheers, but I'll bet that um, both those leads brought a lot to the table in in what they were doing. That's probably true. Yeah. Uh, oh, and Woody Allen was influential to me, also growing up. I have to say.
3: <laughs>
0: Uh, Jeff same question what were you watching reading listening to as a youth that you think um, influenced Well, you now? look
3: I, I was 10 um, you know I, I was a huge Spielberg was it you know Spielberg Spielberg and Cameron really became the two guys that you know they couldn't do any wrong you know and um, I became obsessed with the movie I was 10 years old and I was I walked up the street I was a new kid in town this is Longmont Colorado and I walk up the street and uh, to meet the new uh, this, this guy up the street my mom, oh go meet him my mom says okay so I go up and he's actually he's got a super 8 camera and he's making a parody of Charlie's Angels and I had no idea that such a thing could be done I mean this is Super 8 not video this is the old the old stuff and he takes me and he shows me you can do animation and all this stuff and it, it, suddenly it clicked it's like oh my god you know a kid in Colorado could make a movie who knew um, so I you know saved up for my paper route bought a camera you know about a year later I wasn't a very good paper route. But, uh, you know, I I just became obsessed with it at that point. So, again, I started with features. So, you know, for me, what really influenced me was, you know, Raiders, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, huge. Star Wars, huge. You know, I was just really into those kind of things. And then, uh, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, like I said, I sort of started out that that way in features. But then when, When you know I got Shasta, when Neil said, let's do TV, um, what I decided to do, this is kind of what I do with everything, um, is I went and looked at it and said, okay, I want to do TV, but I don't really understand TV. So I took some shows I liked. I loved MASH. um, I loved uh, Friends. So I took those and actually watched an episode and retyped it, just watched it on the screen retyped it. And it taught me a huge huge amount of stuff. It taught me, like, how long is good dialogue? It, It taught me, you know, oh, wow. TV, people really do enter when they, when they need to. You know? So certain things like that, but just in terms of structure and sort of the feel of, a, of good dialogue, it taught me a lot on that. And you know, I've, I've done the same thing like when I, when I went into my first one-hour show, which was Hawaii, um, I broke down Northern Exposure, which I think is one of the best mm-hmm. pilots. Uh, reads great. Um, and you know, it's, just, it's really good in terms of setting up a series. So I did the same thing, which is I'd sit down and write it out Ah, okay. I see. You learn how long a scene is. You learn all sorts of stuff. So for me, yeah, it was probably you know, *Mash*, *Cheers*, same thing. Um, You know, the feature side obviously *Raiders*, *Star Wars*, um, *Terminator*, you know, those kind of things. So uh, on one on one hand, I had a very sort of a very cinematic you know feel from the feature side, and then on the other, you know, for the television side, I think it was it was like you know, like Victor said, it's like crisp character. Writing that, uh, that really hooked me in, and and you can absolutely see both in your current work. That's very
0: interesting. Um, all right, let's move it over to you guys. If you have a question, <laughs> okay. Um, keeping this as general as I can. Um, you, we mentioned earlier, you, you know, to call back to the comment about the fact that there's a lot of competition out there. There's the network. There's um, the, the cable, mm. and this whole idea of you know why aren't people watching as much or as frequently, and as as the viewer side of things i can say a lot of it is there is so much competition there's only so many hours in the day what's being done to bring us back to that let's watch it while it's on and would you say social media like like uh, twitter Mm -hmm. facebook that sort of thing because a lot of shows are saying you know a lot of the the talent the writers the the showrunners are okay so and so is going to live tweet during the east coast feed or the west coast yeah we do that that all
3: the time i mean i've got i think right around 23,000 followers on Twitter. Um, I got into Twitter literally because I didn't understand it. <laughs> I heard about it, you know, like everybody. My first tweet was, okay, I'm tweeting. I don't know what this is. You know, I don't get it, but here to go. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, USA has really, really kind of, you know, sunk their claws into me on that because they love it as just, you know, because we, ha- we have like a million-plus people on the white-collar, uh, you know, Facebook page, and whatever I tweet gets re you know re, re replayed there so there 's a lot and you know uh, just in terms of like kind of locking in that hardcore fan base. Does it a lot? I mean, I've done all things. like. I'll I'll usually put up uh, you know a script page where I'll just take a screenshot of my my script and put it up for the next episode. Which again, USA is like, hey, that's like, it's like free advertising, <laughs> you know? So they like that. Um, but but I th- I think yeah I think there's a big push to that. The other thing I th- I see that's happening is you know the the WGA came out and they they've got a study now that says for about every every million I think it's every million impressions you get. Like if people are out there talking about, say, white collar, um, I think it's like every million equates to like, uh, you know, 0.1 rating points. So there's now an equation. and the, the idea there is just to try to get advertisers suddenly interested.
1: Yeah, I, I'm actually not, I haven't been involved in that. <laughs> and, you know, I think every every show tries to do it and not every show... Is successful, so I feel like there might not be that correlation. I think once you have a successful show, Yes, it's good to keep in touch with your fan base. I don't think that can help you launch a successful show. I think what you, how you launch a successful show is the show should be good, and then if you're lucky, you're the one drama or the one comedy that each network picks every year to put their twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million dollar marketing budget behind. Right. Well, mm-hmm. um, and if yeah. you, and if you are that show, then you're going to get a huge launch, uh, launch. And if you're not, then it's you're going to have a rough go. Could be. I mean, U-
3: USA has really embraced this. I mean, for for Graceland
1: again, it's. Uh uh,
3: you know, we, did, we did a big thing where they ran the first trailer for Graceland, my new show, and the finale of White Collar. Um, and the big thing that week was you have to live, t- you know, live tweet this. And uh, you know, we watch on these conversations, and they're really putting a lot into the social media in terms of launching these. That, that may be more of a cable thing, mm-hmm. but I think they see there's a certain value coming up in in just getting out there and getting underneath. And you know, I think. With the cable audience, because it is smaller and you know, sort of more, more selective, I guess, Um, you you can you can actually target. And I I think, at least at least from their experience, you can you can make that not a launch of a show, but a successful part of the launch of a show. You know, do they
2: yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think a lot of it too has to do with, in my experience, uh, who is on the writing staff that is willing to sort of take over that role. Um, you know, I found that a lot of times on a, if you have a network person in charge of tweeting your show, wow. this is not a good thing. You know, <laughs> um, you really have to have someone. Uh, certainly, we do on our show now. You know, I had never. Uh, I was about to say I'd never heard of tweeting. I'm not that out of things. But I certainly had never done it uh, until about a week and a half ago I finally joined Twitter. And um, Aaron Ginsburg, one of our mutual friends, was like, thank God. Like, what are you, you know? And I was like, someone has to been? teach me how to do this. Um, I think a lot of it is is who is on your staff that's willing to take over that because it is a – I think a connection between the writer's room and an audience is a fantastic connection. Someone has to be willing to do that. Someone has to speak the language. I am not that person for a show, you know. And it's, But, you know, like uh, on the West Wing, though, um, I was in charge of uh, running a basically fake campaign websites for Vinnick and Santos the final year. (laughs) That was something I could do. It didn't involve Twitter. Um, But it was amazing because people actually did come to read. Even though it was a fake campaign, Mm. people... Came to read what I, a fake campaign staffer, was writing happened in the background, you know, in the background during a week, and and so, you know, I do think, um, to Victor's point, it's a lot easier if you have a successful show, if you have your built-in audience that is willing to come and seek that out. But like on Do No Harm, we're hoping that um, you know that the. the uh, that applying or trying to get this new audience will actually help us when we premiere. So I guess it remains to be seen.
3: I mean, it may be a network versus cable thing at this point because USA really has said... We w- we're going to make tweeting, Facebook, social media a real big part of all our launches from mm-hmm. this point. I mean, they've really embraced it, and, you know, they seem to have enough marketing to back it up that it's helped them. So, yeah, it yeah, probably has. But, uh, you know, also USA is probably, I, I think, in my experience at least, they're the best at launching shows. They really, they really do it right.
0: They're also one of the best branded
3: networks. Yeah, I mean, exactly. People like, know what they're
0: going to get. So exactly. anything above that is a little bonus. Uh, yeah, we have time for one more question.
2: I was just wondering, so all the networks have diversity writer programs, and I was just curious um, how you guys have seen maybe diversity change throughout your career. Maybe Lauren can comment on being a woman writer. Yes. Um, it's a great question. Um, and, you know, certainly I have gone from being on a staff. Uh, the final year of the West Wing was uh, a staff of six people, and I was one of two women. Um, that's actually, from what I hear, pretty common. Um, now on Do No Harm, uh, it's, I believe it's 13 writers, seven women, and six men. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's incredible to see. I think that there's simply a lot more awareness, and this is where the diversity programs come in as well. Um, there's just a lot more awareness, and both of these guys can actually speak to hiring practices a lot more than I can. Um, but to, to realize that there is uh, validity in all voices and the more different voices that you can have in a room the better fleshed out you know like there aren't shows that are all men um you know so why would you have all men write all characters. It just doesn't make sense. Why, you know, why would you have all white people try to write a diverse cast? You, you know, like you want diversity on both ends because you want it to reflect your audience and our audience is diverse. So you guys can probably speak a lot more than I can about well, staffing.
1: diversity programs, but I don't think that they uh, cover women, in my experience. Well, diversity is like yeah, ethnic diversity, right. right? Okay. So you always, obviously, you want to have women on your staff and... Uh, You know, you're reading... I don't know if it's the same in drama, but um, there's a thirst for good women comedy writers. And I think if you're a good female comedy writer, it's actually... um, you can do really well because there's – maybe it's just because there are more men out there doing it, but we're always looking for uh, women, and they're always sought after and difficult to find. I would say it's the same in drama. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And as far as the diversity, then we get money set aside sometimes that's not within our budget to hire always low-level, entry-level diversity. Um, And that can be – it's an odd thing, though, because it's – certain ethnic groups are – And I went down this road, and it happened with actors, too, that apparently, like, if you're, you know, uh, Latin, uh, African-American, I think Asian, but if you're Persian, it doesn't count. So I'm not sure what the rules are. But you read this stuff, and you think, okay, well, who's qualified? So when you really get into it, it starts to feel a little surreal. But, yeah, you pick somebody from that, you know, uh, program. Uh, I've seen it work out on uh, Earl we had a diversity rider who was really great and and really uh, went on in their career and has done great things and then I've seen it uh, not work out but it's always you know it's never when it hasn't worked out it's never been a bad experience it's you know it's just uh, that person has not gone on and caught on by themselves they came through the program but it's I think it's a good idea it gives them a leg up and then if they can prove themselves they can keep working
0: um, very quickly, uh, starting with Victor and coming down the line, uh, what are you watching on television? What are you talking about with your coworkers? What's, what is everyone talking about in the room? Uh, what's getting you excited or inspired to
1: write? Uh, I mostly watch drama. Um, I watch <laughs> uh, Breaking Bad. You know, I'm still a little behind. My wife and I are a little behind in that. Uh, Boardwalk Empire. I watch Bill Maher. I watch Jon Stewart. Uh, you know my kids watch, uh, and so i 'll watch some stuff with them um, you know uh, modern family i don 't watch a lot of comedy actually i't I, I try to watch everything when it comes on once, and then uh, um, I want to get out of the business so i stop <laughs> uh,
3: you know for me, partly just being crazy busy i haven't i haven 't watched as much as I used to like you know for the for example, the shield was probably my favorite show and you know, uh, I ended up with, like, the last season, I had, like, five on my DVR, and I just, like, I can't, you know? <laughs> so I went for almost, like, two years before I finally watched the end of that. But, you know, currently, um, what I, you know, it's sort of the event stuff that I've been coming to, like Game of Thrones. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's strange, but I, I think I've seen one full episode of, uh, of Breaking Bad. I know it's an amazing show, but the only time I see it or, for example, even Mad Men, which I've, I've seen several episodes, but I just can't watch them regularly, is when I get director's reels. And I like, oh, cool, Mad Men, I guess I have to watch that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'd say, so yeah, uh, the events, stuff like that, like the day-to-day for me, or the things I can't miss, let's see... Um Trying to think of something that I, I usually watch. I mean, I mean, everybody in the room was talking about Breaking Bad, Sons of Anarchy. Um, Episodes, I've left that out. That's a really fun show yeah. if you're in working Very good, epi- very good show. Um, it's weird, I've actually lately, just with my time, I've been spending a lot of it just sort of the slow drip going from Discovery to his- History Channel. <laughs> yeah. So I've been. that uh, a lot. Yeah, I've been sort of, you know, it's just easier for me to come in and engage my brain for a yeah. few minutes and then go back out. <laughs> Unfortunately, not a lot. Uh, Lauren?
2: Um, Yeah, you know, I have a two-year-old, so I watch a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine, Little Einsteins. Um, No, you know, uh, much like these guys said, uh, a lot of times when I come home from television, I don't want to watch television. I I feel like a horrible television writer saying that. Um, So I'm a big reality junkie. Um, What's funny, though, is when I do find something that I love, uh, when I was on Parenthood... um, Everyone, Jason Kanems, who runs Parenthood, had uh, ran and written Friday Night Lights. And when I joined the show, everyone talked about Friday Night Lights. And I was I finally brought season one home, and I said to my husband, like, so sorry. We have to watch. Like, I just have to know what people are talking about. And I think we watched a whole season in a weekend. And, um, you know, and then all of a sudden, for not having time to watch television, it would be 2.30 in the morning, and we'd be like, one more episode, one more episode. So it's funny, because um, there's a lot on my TiVo, a lot that I plan on catching up on. And I know that... That um, Once I start, I'm not going to be able to stop Uh, You know, but right now um, I can talk Project Runway With anyone, (laughs) you know, that's what I watch When I come home from work
3: I have to say, uh, you know, my story aside um, As a showrunner, if I'm interviewing somebody I really hate somebody that's too good For television You know, I don't even own a television It's like, if you're going to write it, you (laughs) you should So, in my history, I've watched plenty I've seen, I think, every episode of MASH twice Probably episode of Cheers three times but uh, yeah, so it's like if you're going to do it, embrace it. Yeah. It goes with yeah. studio executives too. It's like if you're too good for TV, I don't think you should give me notes.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, please give a round of applause to today's panelists, Lauren Hisrick, Jeff Easton, and Victor Fresco. Thanks to everyone here at Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics and to 826 Life.
1: Now leaving Nerdist.com.